Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is committed to bringing you the ad-free, in-depth news you rely on. Our daily global news hour is not funded by corporations or the government. We don't run ads or have a paywall. We rely on you to make our daily news hour possible. Please donate $5, $10, or any amount at democracynow.org today to support our independent reporting. Your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! The woke mind virus is basically a form of cultural Marxism. At the end of the day, it's an attack on the truth. And because it's a war on truth, I think we have no uh, choice but to wage a war on woke. Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis has formally launched his presidential campaign. We'll go to Florida to look at his record, including his attacks on workers' rights. Then we look at the war in Ukraine. Catastrophic war has completely changed the nature of both Ukrainian and Russian societies and how both societies have become radicalized and militarized in ways that are going to last for decades. We have to pursue peace, but we also have to understand the limitations on what can be accomplished in the present moment and how urgently we need to help the millions of civilians that are threatened by this conflict. Plus, we'll speak to the head of Oxfam International, which says G7 nations collectively owe poor nations in the global south more than $13 trillion in development and climate assistance. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Russia's Wagner Group says it has begun withdrawing from Bakhmut and will transfer control of the devastated Ukrainian city to the Russian army. On Wednesday, Wagner's founder, Yevgeny Prigozhin, said 20,000 of the group's mercenaries were killed during Russia's months-long assault on Bakhmut. Prigozhin also warned the invasion of Ukraine could trigger a revolution in Russia, blasting what he called the fat, carefree lives of Russia's elite, while poor and working-class Russians die by the thousands. On Wednesday, the commander of a self-described anti-Putin Russian militia spoke to reporters on the Ukrainian side of the border, promising more attacks on Russian territory after the Kremlin said it had repelled a raid by the militia in the Belgorod region. The New York Times reports the pro-Ukraine fighters used at least three U.S.-made armored vehicles known as MRAPs during their incursion. In Moscow, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov cited the hardware as evidence of direct involvement in the conflict by the United States and its NATO allies. Earlier today, Russia signed an agreement with Belarus to begin deploying tactical nuclear weapons in the former Soviet state. Meanwhile, Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin traveled to Shanghai for talks with President Xi Jinping, who said Wednesday cooperation between Moscow and Beijing would reach a higher level. We'll have more on Russia, Belarus and Ukraine later in the broadcast. In Sudan, bouts of fighting between the army and the paramilitary rapid support forces have been reported in Khartoum and other cities, threatening a fragile seven-day ceasefire. Both sides blame the other for violating the temporary truce, which was mediated by the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. 
The ongoing fighting has hindered delivery of essential humanitarian relief. As the UN says, over 1.3 million people have now fled their homes, about a quarter of them seeking refuge in neighboring countries. Meanwhile, a push by the UN to raise funds for the worsening humanitarian disaster in the Horn of Africa fell far short of its goal, raising just $2.4 billion of the $7 billion needed to respond to the hunger crisis facing millions of people in Somalia, Ethiopia and Kenya. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres appealed to wealthy nations to step up, saying, quote, people in the Horn of Africa are paying an unconscionable price for a climate crisis they did nothing to cause. Guterres spoke ahead of the UN's pledging event Wednesday. The longest drought on record. Mass displacement after years of conflict and insecurity. Skyrocketing food prices. And now chaos and fighting have engulfed Sudan, radiating instability across the entire region. Typhoon Mawar is headed toward the Philippines and Taiwan after lashing the island of Guam. The powerful storm, which has been upgraded to a super typhoon, downed trees, tore roofs off of houses and knocked out power across much of the U.S. territory Wednesday, but no fatalities have been reported. Some areas received up to two feet of rain. A meteorologist in Guam said of the post-typhoon scene, quote, what used to be a jungle looks like toothpicks. In Germany, police have raided the operations of Direct Action Climate Group last generation, targeting seven locations across the country. Police also froze the group's accounts and shut down their website. The climate activists have been branded a criminal organization due to their high-profile protests, which include shutting down traffic on major roads by gluing themselves to the concrete. Last Generation is one of several direct action groups that have turned to public acts of disruption to draw attention to the spiraling climate disaster. Activists have also shut off pipelines and famously threw mashed potatoes on a painting by Monet in a museum. This is Last Generation member Amy van Balen speaking after Wednesday's raid. This doesn't mean that the resistance will stop. We will still continue to resist. We have democratically agreed that we have signed the Paris Agreement. We have a constitution in which Article 20 states that our livelihoods must be preserved, today and in the future. And of course, it is absolutely democratic to defend that. In other climate news, a new investigation from the watchdog group Corporate Accountability finds that over 90 percent of Chevron's carbon offsets are junk, with some likely contributing to the climate crisis and creating social harm. Environmental and indigenous activists have long opposed the idea of carbon offsets as corporate greenwashing. In related news, the city of Hoboken in New Jersey is suing Chevron, Exxon and other oil companies over racketeering charges for knowingly deceiving the public of the climate risks of its industry. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said Wednesday the U.S. remains on course to default on its loans as early as next Thursday, unless lawmakers agree to raise the ceiling on the national debt. The White House says a default would cause severe damage to the U.S. economy, costing up to 8 million jobs. On Tuesday, far-right House Freedom Caucus member Matt Gates openly admitted Republicans were holding the U.S. economy hostage in a bid to force Democrats to agree to huge cuts in federal spending. I think my conservative colleagues 
for the most part, support Limit Save Grow, and they don't feel like we should negotiate with our hostage. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre seized on Gates' comments, saying they showed the fight over the debt ceiling was a manufactured crisis. And don't take our word for it. Just listen to members of the House Freedom Caucus. They've been very honest about this and are now openly, they're saying the quiet thing out loud, referring to the full faith and credit of the United States as a hostage. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has officially entered the race for the Republican Party's 2024 presidential nomination. DeSantis announced his candidacy during a Twitter Spaces interview with Twitter's billionaire owner Elon Musk. DeSantis's announcement was delayed by a half hour as Twitter's live stream repeatedly glitched and crashed. There is no substitute for victory. We must end the culture of losing that has infected the Republican Party in recent years. The tired dogmas of the past are inadequate for a vibrant future. We must look forward, not backwards. As governor of Florida, DeSantis has signed a slew of bills targeting reproductive rights, immigrant rights, public sector unions, the transgender community, and diversity programs in schools. We'll go to Florida after headlines for more on Ron DeSantis' candidacy. Uvalde, Texas, has marked the one-year anniversary of the mass shooting that claimed the lives of 19 elementary school children and two of their teachers. Mourners gathered Wednesday outside St. Philip's Episcopal Church for a day of remembrance vigil. San Antonio resident Yolanda Valenzuela says the massacre has caused lasting trauma to teachers, students, and parents across Texas. Nobody feels safe anymore. The kids, you know, they spend some of their time learning how to deal with active shooters and how to hide and this and that and the other. And 10 years ago, you didn't hear that. At the White House, President Biden marked the anniversary of the Uvalde massacre with another appeal to Congress to pass a ban on assault weapons and other gun control. In India, the Delhi High Court has summoned the BBC to face a defamation case over a documentary on India's Hindu nationalist Prime Minister Narendra Modi. The film, titled India, the Modi Question, aired earlier this year, highlighting Modi's role in anti-Muslim riots, which killed an estimated thousand people in 2002 when Modi was governor of Gujarat state. Modi's government has attempted to block people sharing the film, calling it, quote, hostile propaganda and anti-India garbage. An Australian police officer has been charged over the killing of a 95-year-old great-grandmother in a New South Wales nursing home. Claire Nolan died Wednesday of complications from head trauma after 33-year-old senior police constable Christian White fired his taser at her, causing her to collapse. Officers had been responding to a report of an elderly woman with dementia holding a serrated steak knife. Australian police are allowed to use tasers if they feel their lives are in danger, but witnesses say Noland weighed 95 pounds and was slowly advancing toward officers using a walker. New South Wales Police Commissioner Karen Webb announced the charges Wednesday. For the offences of recklessly inflict grievous bodily harm, assault occasioning actual bodily harm, and assault. 
Here in New York, resident doctors at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens have ended their strike after reaching a tentative deal with their employer, the Mount Sinai Health System. Their union says the agreement brings early career doctors much closer towards parity with their counterparts who work at hospitals in Manhattan. And the queen of rock and roll, Tina Turner, has died at the age of 83. Born Anna Mae Bullock in, in Tennessee, she rose to fame alongside her husband, Ike Turner, in the 1960s before leaving the abusive relationship and becoming a solo artist. Turner topped the charts with hits like What's Love Got to Do With It, The Best, and Proud Mary. She won eight Grammys throughout her career and was celebrated for her electrifying stage performances. Like many notable black artists, Tina Turner faced racism in the U.S. and said she felt more at home in Europe, where she had an even larger fan base. She lived with her husband, Erwin Bach, in Switzerland, where she passed away peacefully after a battle with intestinal cancer. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Amy is at her nephew's college graduation. Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis has officially launched his presidential campaign. DeSantis made the announcement on a Twitter audio stream hosted by Twitter's billionaire owner Elon Musk, but major technical glitches disrupted the event. DeSantis later appeared on Fox News. The woke mind virus is basically a form of cultural Marxism. At the end of the day, it's an attack on the truth. And because it's a war on truth, I think we have no uh, choice but to wage a war on woke. So how does that work for a president? Some of it may be the bully pulpit, being willing to tell the truth and not being deluded by ideology, which we see in many aspects of our society. The 2024 Republican primaries will pit DeSantis against his former ally Donald Trump and at least five other Republicans, including Senator Tim Scott and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. As governor of Florida, DeSantis has passed a slew of bills targeting reproductive rights, immigrant rights, the transgender community and diversity programs in schools. He's also recently signed legislation to weaken the power of public sector unions. To talk more about Ron DeSantis, we're joined by Alfonso Mayfield. He's the president of SEIU, Florida Public Services Union. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Alfonso Mayfield. If you could begin by responding to uh, the announcement by Ron DeSantis. I think it's just the use of words. Um, that He didn't really say anything. I think a lot of his governing strategy has been to throw out firebrand cultural issues because he does not have actual policy-based solutions to the ills of what are happening to the people of Florida. And could you explain, Alfonso, what exactly is happening to the people of Florida? What are the issues that they're confronting? Skyrocketing uh, rent, uh, skyrocketing uh, home prices, um, the, our schools are, to some extent, falling apart because of years of lack of funding um, and a move to, to privatize public education, um, which he pushed for uh, last cycle. Um, skyrocketing energy prices. Uh, he has approved and pushed for multiple increases or, or the allowing of multiple increases of energy prices over the last few years. So people are hurting. Um, 
the cost of inflation is not keeping up with people's wages. And instead of dealing with those issues directly, he's punching down and focusing on the most marginalized aspects of our community and the people who are actually working and trying to create a better lives for their families and their communities. Well, to go to that, earlier this month, as we said in our introduction, DeSantis signed legislation aimed at weakening public sector unions. Could you explain what that legislation entails and also why unions representing police, firefighters and corrections officers were exempt from the bill? So I'll start with the latter first. I think that it was done for two reasons. Uh, the exemption was to divide workers. And it was also for him to cater to a core part of his base, which are more uh, people who are in more conservative um, aspects of the labor movement. Um, and he did not want to appear publicly that he was attacking fire and police. Um, his reasons for doing it, you look at who's funding his campaign or who's giving him campaign contributions. I think it, that's fairly obvious. But what the attack essentially does was it basically tries to put up significant barriers between uh, workers and their ability to be able to have a union. It puts their contracts at risk by saying that there has to be a 60% threshold for membership for them to be able to keep their contracts. And it adds a bunch of, you know, crazy auditing requirements to prove that 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 people who say that they're members of the union are member of the unions and also a 40 page membership card um, it's using it's, it's, it's doing it's doing what you know, far right conservatives complain about all the time of using the power of the state and using what he said the bully pulpit um, of regulation to be able to try to interfere with people's daily life it's actually doing that it's an attempt to soften uh, and you know, flat out stifle the voice of workers, but it's not going to work. Um, our members, other members of labor are uh, committed to making sure that that doesn't happen. And Alfonso, could you elaborate who are the workers that are principally impacted or will be principally impacted uh, by these policies? That's a great question. So it's all workers who work in the public sector uh, with an exemption for fire and police. So I, I know that there was a, a, a narrative push that this was just about teachers, which was also still horrible. But this would affect everyone who is a public employee in Florida um, on the state level, on the local level. So everyone from school teachers, bus drivers, custodians, adjunct professors, sanitation workers, um, if you code enforcement, if you work in the public sector, you would be impacted by the passing of this law. And so could you give us overall, Alfonso, a, a record of what his uh, tenure has been like as governor and what you fear uh, the impact on workers across the country would be in the event that he's elected president? It has been governing by distraction. It's been governing by punching down not having solutions to actual problems and using jargon and catchphrases as a distraction. It has been focusing on workers, people of color, immigrants, and the LGBTQ community and saying, look at these people. They're the reason for all the problems while actually passing bills and pushing for the passage of bills that are making the lives of Floridians worse. You will be hard pressed to find anyone 
right, left, center that would say that Floridians are better off than they were when he took office. And he knows that. And so if he becomes president, you're also looking at someone who would have the, the temerity and the ability to use the full power of the state to silence vast swaths of voices on both sides of the aisle because it's all about power and control. And finally, Alfonso, do you think Florida is still a swing state? Can Democrats not win a statewide race there? Florida is absolutely a swing state. And I want to dispel some myths about last cycle in Florida. Florida suffered a 90 percent drop of investment um, in campaigns over the election in 18. What that means is that the national party, national apparatuses, other donors basically said, we're not going to put money in Florida uh, in part because of saving the house and other factors. So when you have someone on one side that's spending presidential level money and still did not get the level of turnout that they did in 18, and one side does not have the resources, this is what happens. I think that there's a reckoning that's coming within our democracy. Um, a friend of mine, Eric Bracken, talks a lot, of, and he stole this quote, but I'm going to give him credit for it, that to keep the democracy, we have to win in the Midwest. And he, but he also talks about how the Confederacy has always undermined the democracy. We have to be able to do both. We can't cede half the country and think that we're going to keep a functioning democracy. Every race where resources were, 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 were plentiful and existed, we won or were competitive. If we want to be competitive in Florida, we have to invest. But all the indicators show Florida is still a swing state. Thank you so much, uh, Alfonso Mayfield, president of SEIU, Florida Public Services Union. Coming up, we go to Kiev to look at the war in Ukraine. We don't need another hero by the queen of rock and roll, Tina Turner, who died Wednesday at the age of 83. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Nermeen Sheikh. We turn now to the war in Ukraine. As calls grow for Russia's war in Ukraine to end, a number of recent developments indicate the war could be expanding beyond the borders of Ukraine. Earlier today, Russia signed an agreement with Belarus to begin deploying tactical nuclear weapons in the former Soviet state. The Kremlin said the move was a response to what it called the, quote, sharp escalation of threats on the western borders of Russia and Belarus. 
Earlier this week, a group of pro-Ukrainian fighters from Russia attacked sites in the Russian region of Belgorod using what appears to be U.S.-made armor vehicles and Humvees. The Biden administration has denied any U.S. involvement in the cross-border raid. On Wednesday, National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said, quote, we don't support the use of U.S.-made equipment for attacks inside Russia. The cross-border raid was carried out in part by a group called the Russian Volunteer Corps. According to the Financial Times, the group includes self-avowed neo-Nazis. Meanwhile, the New York Times reports U.S. intelligence agencies believe the recent drone attack on the Kremlin was likely carried out by a Ukrainian special military or intelligence unit. The Times says it remains unclear if Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky or his top officials were aware of the operation. This comes as a top Ukrainian military intelligence official has admitted to the German publication Die Welt that Ukraine is seeking to assassinate both Russian President Vladimir Putin and Wagner Group founder Yevgeny Prigozhin. Fighting continues around the devastated Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, which has been largely seized by Russia after a brutal fight. Russia is also continuing to attack other Ukrainian cities. On Wednesday, Russian aircraft destroyed a kindergarten in the Sumy region. We're joined now by two guests. Gregory Afenigenev is a professor of Russian history at Georgetown University. His recent piece for Jacobin is headlined, Peace in Ukraine Isn't Coming Soon. He joins us from Stamford, New York. And in the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv is Denis Pilash. He's a Ukrainian political scientist and historian. He's a member of the Ukrainian Democratic Socialist Organization, Sotsnyalny Ruch, and also an editor at Commons, Journal of Social Criticism. Welcome both to Democracy Now! Denis Pilash, uh, I'd like to begin with you. Uh, you're in Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital, which has recently witnessed a spate of attacks from uh, uh, Russia. If you could describe what the scene is uh, on the ground in, in Kyiv. Well, uh, hello. And uh, I should start with uh, everyone living in, in Ukraine can witness and experience that sheer amount of devastation that was inflicted by the Russian invasion on our country. And actually, we've been living here for more than a year in a situation of a constant um, air raid alerts and um, shellings and uh, missile strikes on major cities with uh, entire cities in the eastern part of Ukraine raised to the ground. So Bakhmut is uh, being the last in the list um, as this infamous grinder there is ongoing since uh, from last uh, summer. Uh, but as um, well, um, it seems that the army of invasion uh, failed to uh, complete its uh, tasks and uh, Ukrainian resistance um, did overcome the, the Russian plans. So uh, Russia uh, is uh, unleashing um, both indiscriminate attacks on the civilian population in the residential areas. And uh, it was also their major strategy this winter when they targeted um, specifically civilian infrastructure. So uh, they tried to freeze Ukrainians to death by destroying power plants, energy grids, water supplies, heating, but ultimately didn't succeed as uh, um, workers uh, and engineers of Ukraine. They almost did miracles in restoring the infrastructure. 
and also the air air defense has become more efficient. So most of Russian missiles and drones drones are being uh, intercepted. So uh, contrary to some um, talking point popular in um, some Western circles, foreign military aid can. Um, save um, civilian lives. Uh, but recently, these resumed waves of missile attacks, they claimed many dozens of lives when uh, they hit uh, multi-story apartment buildings in places like Uman and Dnipro. But for instance, in Kyiv, uh, almost we have, uh, albeit we have everyday multiple air, uh, air, ra air raids, uh, but um, the vast majority of these uh, missiles and drones are intercepted, so people are got to some accustomed to some kind of this living under constant uh, attacks. So, uh, for instance, in our university, we have already conducted our um, classes like in the basement, in the um, bomb shelters. So uh, it, it becomes some uh, very frightening, but part of this so-called new normality and this very thin veil that um, um, actually uh, hides this uh, brutality of war. Uh, it can be just uh, overcome when you open your social um, media um, newsfeed and you'll see the, this continuation of obituaries. So almost everyone has uh, already um, friends or relatives who, whose lives have been lost um, and many of these are civilians. And Dennis, could you also respond to the latest news, which we uh, read in our introduction, namely that uh, uh, Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner mercenary group, has said that they will start withdrawing uh, from Bakhmut. He also said that 20,000 of his fighters, of Wagner fighters, had been killed in the battle for the city. Uh, he also said the head of uh, half of whom, uh, half of the 20,000 who were killed uh, were former prisoners recruited by Wagner. You've said that Wagner is like Blackwater on steroids. So if you could respond to the news and also explain what you mean by that, what has Wagner been responsible for? So uh, Wagner Group is probably one of the most notorious units inside the Russian war machine, and uh, it has its level, its degree of autonomy. Thus, the, all these conflicts with the official uh, Russian army and the Ministry of Defense. But actually, it uh, has been used extensively by by the Russian regime uh, to do all 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 the black. Um, very nasty things, uh, not just in Ukraine, but uh, in many regions of the world, in Syria, in Africa. We actually had uh, recently a call of solidarity um, with uh, activists from different African countries, from uh, Sudan to South Africa and uh, Mauritius. And, uh, well, uh, we learned a lot about uh, this presence of Wagner Group there and actually um, Sudan was the first country that was uh, t targeted by, by um, Wagner mercenaries when the now ousted dictator uh, Omar Bashir uh, led, led them into his country and in a very neo-colonial or even uh, classical 19th century uh, colonialism way of uh, doing things, they started looting the uh, natural resources, namely the gold of, of, of the country, and they were very heavily involved into all uh, the conflicts there. And now we are inside another um, 
conflict in Sudan, where both sides have links to, to, to Russia and have links to the Wagner Group, and specifically, like the um, the head of the Janjaweed, who who is now who was responsible for the Darfur genocide and who is now waging this uh, war against uh, other generals in Sudan. He was in Moscow on the day of in Russia's invasion of Ukraine and assured Putin is his full full support. So this was only the starting point, and ultimately Wagner became some backbone for many military dictatorships in several um, African countries. So it seems that uh, they are very ruthless. They include people who are also coming from a far right um, uh, white uh, supremacist background. Uh, they are usually linked to lots of um, war crimes, both in the Middle East, in Africa and in Ukraine. And it seems that uh, Prigozhin tries to uh, grab every opportunity, every publicity to uh, probably um, make his appearance even more notorious uh, because uh, he wants to use this in some possible future power struggle inside Russia. So it seems that he tries to underline uh, like his importance both in uh, internal and foreign policy of Russia. And this makes him uh, an even uh, more uh, notorious uh, figure for many people in the post-Soviet space who are afraid that even if uh, Putin's regime is gone, it may, may be replaced with something like uh, this kind of uh, even more outright ultranationalist and militarist uh, regime like Prigozhin. Yeah, and only to add that uh, a recent UN report uh, accused Wagner mercenaries of involvement in a March 2022 massacre in a village in Mali, uh, where nearly 500 people were killed. Uh, I'd like to go now to uh, Professor uh, Gregory Fenigenev. Uh, you're a professor of Russian history. Your recent piece for Jacobin is headlined, Peace in Ukraine isn't coming soon. Uh, could you explain why you believe uh, peace, peace negotiations are not possible at the moment, and indeed why you make the argument that the question is not so much of the U.S. pushing Ukraine to negotiate, but that whatever agreement is reached would result in a very long-standing standoff uh, between Ukraine and Russia akin to what happened in Korea or uh, Nagorno-Karabakh? Yeah, I think um, if you look at the context of what's happening in both Ukrainian and Russian societies as a result of the invasion, both societies are becoming highly polarized, in which uh, obviously in Russia, liberals have been not only imprisoned, but effectively exiled or threatened with conscription, massive fines and so on. But even uh, passive supporters of the invasion are uh, held to a particular standard in terms of even uh, high-profile supporters have been had their private phone calls leaked uh, in what appears to be, uh, you know, an attempt by the state to threaten them. Um, and of course, this has also affected the way that the elite competition plays out. As uh, uh, Denise mentioned with Prigozhin, right, um, the Russian elite that is competing now for the spot of designated heir to Putin wants to be uh, seen as more militaristic, wants to be seen as more patriotic, more aggressive than its rivals. And any of the sort of soft, technocratic liberals that you might have seen 10 years ago have largely been cowed into submission or disappeared, not to say that they would be any better necessarily. Um, and of course, in Ukrainian society, uh, positions that were more or less socially consensus, or at least a solid middle ground 10, 15 years ago, 
uh, have now become symptomatic of uh, uh, dedication to Putinism or support for Russia that uh, is now grounds for essentially removal from Ukrainian political life. And so the sole uh, legitimate contenders for uh, political power in Ukraine are highly uh, nationalist and highly bent on um, recovering the territories lost to Russia, which, of course, is completely understandable considering the uh, the uh, awful, horrendous nature of this invasion and the true scope of all the lives and the, and the land has been lost. Um, so as a result, you know, this is not something that the U.S. has caused. It's not something that the U.S. is it's some, of course, some, the U.S. is perpetuating it in the sense that it's preventing Ukraine from losing. But the underlying social tensions here are not something that the U.S. can remove by asking for negotiations. These societies are now deeply at odds in a way that's going to persist for many, many years. And you've said, uh, as against uh, recent speculations, you've said that uh, Russia has been preparing politically for this war for at least a decade. Could you explain what you mean by that and, and how so? I think um, the sequence of events that started with uh, the U.S. invasion of Libya and also with the opposition Bolotnaya protests in Russia uh, right around the same moment in 2011, I think this was a moment of reckoning for Putin in the sense that uh, he believed that unless he changed things very radically, he would be at risk of some kind of regime change internal operation. Now, whether that's justified or not, I can't say, but... Um, and that's not to say that this wasn't based on a paranoid fantasy, and it is. Of course, it's linked to an idea of the West not too dis distant from DeSantis's, right, as something that is a force for, that is a kind of woke virus that seeks to implant liberalism everywhere around the world and, uh, you know, remove respect for traditional values and so on, right? So the invasion of Ukraine was the sort of foreign policy version of that initiative. And when Maidan took place, Putin realized that he could not, do to Ukraine what he had previously done to Belarus, which is to make it a uh, highly politically authoritarian and highly politically subservient puppet state, in, and which has gotten even worse, of course, since 2020, uh, when the pro-democracy protests were brutally suppressed. Um, so the, the military route here is an attempt by Putin to uh, ensure that, uh, that there is no sort of visible post-Soviet challenge to the Russian world order. Uh, or the Russian image of the world order. Now, the failure of this invasion, uh, of course, it's good news for Ukrainians, but it's not necessarily good news for Russian foreign policy. I think it reflects that it kind of reflects the sense, at least for me, that the regime is entering a kind of spiral of uh, aggression and internal dysfunction that is not at risk of ending anytime soon. So, Dennis Pilash, could you respond to what uh, Professor uh, Afeni Ganev said? And also, you know, you're a socialist activist. If you could explain uh, where the left in Ukraine now stands uh, on this war. You, you've mentioned that um, the left in Ukraine describes the situation as, quote, surviving between Russian tanks and Western banks. Could you elaborate? Okay, so yes, I I would just add probably that uh, this type of thinking that is um, now manifested by by the Kremlin elites and Putin himself, it's um, very akin to some kind of uh, Western far right conspiracy theories, and it's uh, um, deeply rooted in the persuasion that no kind of uh, inner change, no kind of revolution, no kind of popular revolt 
is possible without any foreign meddling. So they consider any kind of uh, popular unrest as something that is somehow uh, manufactured by by the foreign enemies and competitors of, of your state. So actually, this is a deeply conservative um, worldview. And uh, of course, it's uh, based on, first of all, uh, this very deep um, fear of uh, their own people that uh, ultimately um, some kind of new revolution is possible uh, also in, in the Russian Federation. So this uh, makes Russia some kind of um, like in uh, 19th century, Tsar Nicholas I was called the gendarme of Europe as he was suppressing the revolutionary movements like in Hungary. Uh, so uh, in, in this way, they also uh, tried to act in the post-Soviet space as these uh, conservative safeguards, helping the authoritarian regimes to, to keep their populations in, in cages, essentially. But uh, to speak about, uh, to address the situation of the Ukrainian left, so yes, we are in this uh, challenge that together with the entire population of Ukraine, we are um, we need to uh, do this existential fight essentially for the survival of uh, Ukraine as a separate entity, as a separate republic, but also we need to preserve uh, this space for democratic action and to preserve the space for social change. And uh, this is very deeply connected with the issues of um, already wartime economy and post-war reconstruction, as um, what has been exposed at uh, international um, forums like the Lugano conference, and now there will be another conference in London dedicated to the uh, post-war reconstruction of Ukraine. Both uh, the Ukrainian and Western ruling classes, they, uh, they tend to uh, apply mostly uh, very pro-market, very uh, business-friendly and business-oriented um, uh, approaches in uh, this reconstruction and essentially they will uh, try also to use the situation that was created by uh, this uh, Russian war of aggression to uh, further um, like make um, more more offensive on, on, on the social state and um, the public sector in Ukraine. Uh, while we, as Ukrainian leftists, uh, uh, socialists, trade unionists, feminists, environmentalists, and other activists, uh, we feel that, uh, on the contrary, the country that has been so heavily um, torn by the war, uh, it needs uh, expansion of the welfare state. It, it needs expansion of uh, the public sectors, as uh, we will have. Uh, we already have a huge need in social housing. This shouldn't be left to corrupt private contractors that have been already destroying our cities from inside. Uh, we will have an enormous number of people with, um, who uh, were injured in the war, people with disabilities, with PTSD. And this uh, means that we need more hospitals, we need more uh, medical and uh, psychological help, and we also need to create protection for those who have been affected by the war, for the veterans and for the civilians alike. And actually, this is a kind of reconstruction that uh, was um, uh, in many European countries after the victory over the fascist Texas in the Second World War, when, when actually the uh, 
working classes and uh, organized labor, trade unions, in many places they were empowered by this anti-fascist uh, victory enthusiasm and they could pressure their uh, governments to more concessions and to a more socially oriented, more socially uh, just uh, way of reconstructing the economy and the country in general. So uh, this, uh, I think this is also a point where uh, an international left and international progressive movements also can make a difference by pressuring their governments to a more socially, genderly, ecologically just um, reconstruction of Ukraine, and also uh, taking the issue of Ukraine into the bigger uh, picture of uh, the countries of the periphery. And we actually, at our journal Commons, now um, launched a project called Dialogue with the Peripheries because we feel that people in Ukraine and Central Eastern Europe in general, they need to build more bridges with the so-called Global South, with the peoples of uh, Latin America, Africa, Asia, because we face different, we have different histories and different colonial and uh, imperialist oppressors, but actually we face very uh, similar patterns of dependency. And we actually uh, need to counter them together in solidarity for, um, for instance, such cases as uh, debt cancellation. Again, you cannot have a running war economy and post-war economy when you your country is obliged to this uh, vicious circle of debt. And Ukraine isn't the first one that uh, was trapped inside. So uh, we need to, to build this uh, more internationalist and more global front for, for change that would defy any kind of uh, imperialists in any forms be it the Russian tanks, yes, uh, the direct brute force that is uh, espoused by Russia, not just in Ukraine, but in many other uh, places, or more sneaky kinds of uh, other uh, forms of dependency that can be, for instance, um, imposed by the international uh, financial organizations. So, Professor Afanaganev, if you could respond to, to what Dennis said, you have also pointed out that the war has been a kind of shock doctrine for rapidly accelerating the new liberalization of Ukrainian society. If you could elaborate on that and also respond to what kinds of reconstruction aid uh, is required now in, in Ukraine and, and where that might come from. Yeah, the shock doctrine, I mean, it's very clear. Uh, it's it's almost a textbook case, right? So Zelensky's party, Servant of the People, originally proposed a slate of reforms to the pension law and to labor law in Ukraine that were highly radical. In fact, um, it would eliminate the ability for public, for labor unions to, to collectively bargain um, before the war. And they were unable to do so. They didn't have enough support in the RADA. Um, after the war, uh, there was a, of course, a rally around the flag effect, and um, many of the leading opposition parties, in fact, all of them were banned, although their deputies remained in the Rada, um, and they were able to pass these reforms, which, uh, you know, even the ILO has criticized. These are these are not um, middle of the road reforms; they are the far right of the neoliberal European consensus, essentially. Um, and they're made use of it by the fact that the that the regime count, the Zelensky government counts on not having any social mobilization against it because everyone is so focused on saving their loved ones from the Russian invasion uh, and in, in allowing the state to do what it needs to do uh, to to protect the country. Um, and so it's become uh, this and and I want to point out here that it's not just Zelensky doing this himself, right? This is EU aid uh, has, comes with a slate of conditions that strongly encourage this neoliberal turn. 
And of course, it's all framed as, you know, getting rid of inefficient Soviet era institutions and so on. Uh, but it amounts to a massive reduction in social welfare spending, all of this uh, reform. So so it really is a question of uh, what kind of Ukraine survives this conflict? Is it going to be a Ukraine that effectively, as I put it in my piece, right, is a gigantic special economic zone uh, that has certain trade privileges in relation to Europe, but has much weaker labor protections? Or is it going to be a country that's just and and actually offers a place to live for its millions of people uh, that is better than the Russian alternative, which I think can easily happen. Uh, but the EU is bent on imposing its neoliberal ideology on the recipients of its aid. And I think it's really important to address the second part of your question here. I think it's really important to take the spotlight away from the question of military aid, which, yes, is national is, is essential for Ukraine's survival. Uh, but the much greater needs of civilian reconstruction right now are barely being discussed because the weapons have taken up so much of the space. Uh, but it's the civilian reconstruction debt cancellation in particular, as I think is very essential, um, and the removal of conditionalities on this kind of aid uh, so as to remove the Zelensky government's uh, ability to wield those conditions to force out left-wing political forces in Ukrainian society. And, um, and you know, perhaps even... Uh, use some of the levers of that aid to pressure Zelensky to to um, withdraw some of his attempts to monopolize public space. You know, uh, there have been documented instances, for example, of protesters uh, on all kinds of issues, not even strongly political ones, being uh, drafted or threatened with conscription and being sent to the front as a result of their political activities. This is extremely troubling because it's uh, directly threatening protesters with violence, right? Um, and the state currently has... Uh, not a lot of coercive resources left, but if the war ends and it still has the same degree of intervention in street politics, uh, that's not going to be good news for Ukrainian democracy. Well, could you also talk about uh, how the war appears to be spreading beyond the borders of Ukraine? There was the recent drone attack on the Kremlin and just this week, the cross-border raids by pro-Ukrainian Russian forces attacking the Belgorod region of Russia. So, I mean, what are your concerns about this uh, potentially escalating to the point, uh, you know, that is uh, potentially devastating uh, for the area, uh, but also potentially uh, the world. And even though you have reservations about uh, a possible ceasefire ending in something like the, the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, situation or Korea, wouldn't a ceasefire nevertheless result in fewer and possibly no uh, lives lost uh, on the Ukrainian side? Um, I mean, I would like to think that, yes. I think I think a ceasefire certainly would be better than most of the available options at this point. Uh, the difficulty with these current cross-border attacks and the other terrorist, well, and the other, you know, acts of sabotage and so on, uh, which from a military point of view are totally defensible, but it's important to understand that these are not volunteer groups in any meaningful sense. These are uh, clients of the Ukrainian security services, right? And what they appear to be doing is they appear to be registering that Western governments are start starting to um, weary of their open-ended commitment to Ukrainian military defense, and I think are trying to provoke Russia into some kind of uh, radical course of action that's going to force the U.S. And, and NATO to take a more radical position. And in doing, and so they're trying to stage these kinds of attacks as more and more obvious in an attempt to get something like this to happen. Uh, obviously, that is extremely risky as a strategy, right? Uh, the risks of this war spiraling out into a 
nuclear or even a larger scale conventional conflict are not uh, great. Um, and but at the same time, it's important to remember that because of the way that these forces are established within Ukrainian society, right, a ceasefire would not prevent this kind of thing from happening. There would be people both in Ukraine and in Russia interested in an immediate resumption of the conflict on any premises, and they would work to constantly sabotage this peace. And they would be able to say, look, these are just volunteers. These are just partisans. Uh, and both within Ukraine and within Russia, you have to remember, for example, that Wagner began as a plausibly deniable non-state organization. Um, so uh, so it's really important to remember the broader stakes of this conflict and work towards a long-term resolution rather than just trying to stop the bleeding and hoping for the best. Dennis Pilash, your final comments. We just have 30 seconds. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I would say that it's quite important now to uh, keep uh, solidarity with the people of Ukraine. And this means that, uh, yes, it needs, uh, they, we need all kinds of support. This includes actually military support, but it also includes this kind of humanitarian aid and uh, resuming the political questions like cancellation of the Ukrainian debt. Thank you so much, uh, Denis Pilash, Ukrainian political scientist and historian. Uh, and thank you, too, to uh, Gregory uh, Fenigenev, uh, professor of Russian history at Georgetown University. We will link to your recent piece in Jacobin headlined, Peace in Ukraine Isn't Coming Soon. Coming up next, a new report from Oxfam finds G7 countries collectively owe poor nations in the global south more than $13 trillion in development and climate assistance. Back in 30 seconds. Don't Want to Fight by Tina Turner, who's passed away Wednesday at the age of 83. We end today's show with a new Oxfam report that shows G7 countries collectively owe poor nations in the global south more than $13 trillion in development and climate assistance. But instead, these countries are saddled with daily debt repayments of $232 million, deepening the global chasm of inequality. To talk more about this, we go now to New Delhi, India, where we're joined by Amitabh Bihar, Interim Executive Director of Oxfam International. Welcome to Democracy Now!, uh, Amitabh Behar. If you could uh, lay out what this report found, the Oxfam report. The, the report is essentially talking about how we need to really relook at their narrative. The current narrative where we talk of G7 as these charitable global leaders uh, which actually should be getting resources in terms of debt repayment from the low and middle income countries needs to be completely transformed. You know, we need to change the gaze. The gaze is essentially where we need to look at what do the G7 countries owe to the 
to the poor in the middle-income countries. So, so I think that change is critical. And as you said, our report clearly says that the G7 countries owe $13.3 trillion dollars uh, to the low and middle income country. So that's that's massive. So this is in the form of uh, uh, the non-payment of aid and and uh, uh, not putting resources in climate action. So that's really the story. And when the G7 is met in Hiroshima, they were talking about zero hunger. They were talking of climate action, but they did not really look at what their responsibility is. And Amitabh, if you could elaborate on that, you've said the huge costs from climate damage caused by the, quote, reckless burning of fossil fuels by rich countries needs to be addressed here as part of the debt. What are you calling for? If you look at, as in, if you look at uh, the commitments that were made by G7, they said from 22 to 25, they were going to invest $100 billion every year. And we've not really seen that money uh, come and and if you increasingly look at the massive damages happening because of the climate crisis, particularly in the south, uh, somebody needs to take responsibility for that. And it's fairly clear, uh, report after report, that the G7 countries are significantly responsible for these emissions. And at this moment, as as our report says, that they almost owe 8.7 uh, trillion dollars in terms of. Uh, loss and damages. So that's that's something that must be put up front uh, by the G7 countries, but that's not happening. And then the second part is that in 1970, the G7 countries agreed to uh, a 0.7 of GNI as ODA. Uh, but we have still now not even seen half of that money getting realized. So, so there are massive shortfalls, deficits, in terms of the money that, that uh, G7 owes to the, uh, the developing countries. And Amitabh Bihar, if you could explain what the concrete effects of these uh, crippling debt payments are on the global south. This comes as a global hunger crisis has risen uh, for the fifth consecutive year. Talk about the impact on individual states of these debt repayments and where the money is taken from to repay the debt. Absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I think that's, that's also very central to our report, that the, the 230 million that goes out every day in terms of debt repayment, which is going to go to the coffers of the G7 countries and, and also a lot of rich bankers, is essentially the money that could have been invested in education, in health, in gender justice programs, in ensuring safe drinking water, in climate resilience. But that's the money that's going back to the G7 countries. And this is happening in the context of the poly crisis that we are witnessing. As you said, uh, fifth year, we are seeing in a row where hunger is rising. Almost 280 million plus people sleep hungry every night. And and this is the time when this whole debt crisis is being talked of. And then, you know, this is also in that context of the fuel crisis. You're looking at inflation. So even the cost of uh, debt repayment is going higher as, as the dollar cost goes up. So in the context of the poly crisis, this, this is really hypocrisy to say that G7 is taking, taking global leadership while uh, it's the schools, uh, 
and the public health system, safe drinking water, which is getting uh, uh, taken away from the poor and the excluded communities. And Amitabh, just, we have just 30 seconds. If you could say how humanitarian aid fits into it, the inadequacy of it, and what needs to be done. It's extremely inadequate. It's fairly clear that the need for humanitarian aid is just growing. And, and that's growing because what we're looking at, you know, the poly crisis is also in terms of inequality, uh, the climate crisis, conflicts. These are all coming together. And at this juncture, uh, the humanitarian aid is, is uh, galloping in terms of the need many fold. But the commitments are very, very hollow. So I'm afraid and, we're going to have to really leave it there. Amitabh Behar, Interim Executive Director of Oxfam International, speaking to us from Delhi. And that does it for its show. I'm Amy Goodman. I'm Narmin.